Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mortimer, songwriter and creativity coach, and I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating conditions for meaningful change from the inside out. Who are you? Who am I? This is a classic question, isn't it? It's puzzled humans for a long time, but it's also kind of fun to think about if we're able to hold it in a less serious way than we often do after reading his book no self no problem a few years ago i really wanted to speak to dr chris niebauer about his findings and what he'd written about and his ideas because it strikes me that so much of our world is plagued by this question of you know who am i how do i find the real me what is my authentic self and so on but this is quite fundamentally a left brain approach and it takes us ever deeper into a rabbit hole of uh, essentially unanswerable questions on on this quest on this search for certainty he quotes the idea of way wu way doing without doing why are you unhappy the question is because 99.9 percent of everything you think and of everything you do is for yourself and there isn't one <laughs> so that's kind of an idea that we will uh, we will hold uh, with us as we go through this episode. Left brain thinking is great. It's helped us to evolve. It helps us to understand and solve problems and organize society and create tools that we can use to build things. You know, this thinking set us apart from other animals. And it's a blessing, um, Chris says, when we uh, use it in the right way. So the question is, are we using the mind or is the mind using us? The left brain loves certainty and can't embrace mystery. The right brain desires mystery and uncertainty. It doesn't want to know what happens tomorrow. It knows that joy comes through play and spontaneity and to responding to the unexpected parts of life. So I hope as a result of listening to our conversation, you feel the same kind of excitement about this mystery. And you want to play within the realms and the gardens of uncertainty from where I think it becomes easier to hold the things in and around our lives. You know, I was listening to another podcast uh, earlier and on it, they were talking about the number of agreements that we make uh, with the world uh, around us every single day. You know, we buy into shared stories. We agree to act in socially uh, acceptable ways and interact using rules that we've somehow come to agree upon. Um, and we kind of, you know, they, they ebb and flow and morph and change over time. But I, we've either kind of actively or mostly implicitly, like because we're part of civil and uh, social society, kind of just come to this point where we, we make these agreements. We agree to act in a certain way. We agree to, to do things in a certain way. And on the one hand, this might feel kind of uh, trapping. It might feel imprisoning. But having a deeper relationship with our right brain self helps us to hold and respect these kinds of agreements in a different way. I can't really describe the difference in how we see them because I'm not sure language quite does it justice. I can't quite articulate it. But we tether less to our own sense of self-importance um, to them. We hold them uh, with a spirit of play and impermanence and freedom. And we come to see what they actually give us as we negotiate this slice of life we're living together on this tiny world in the middle of a vast universe as we kind of make these agreements we create these stories and we share them together and work out how to do that um, and we can do that in a way that doesn't necessarily tether us 
to this story of who we are um, in, in that very strict sense. Anyway, I'm not going to cut this conversation up and I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm just going to let it flow. And then afterwards, I'll pop back to share a piece of music that I actually created after Chris and I finished talking, um, which was a, a beautiful right brain experience for me that I hope you might be able to connect with um, maybe in a similar way. Chris Niebauer, it is amazing to be speaking with you. Um, how are you doing? Great, great. It's great to be here. I've wanted to speak to you ever since I first read your book, No Self, No Problem. Um, I've been like, ah, oh, it's a great conversation to be had here. I want to just dive into these ideas. And I guess the the question that's really on my mind at the moment is, is what it means to be human um, and, you know, what differentiates us from machines, um, from artificial intelligence and from all of that sort of stuff and um, how we can work with the amazing techn technological advances and innovations that are going on to give us more freedom to be human and to uh, yeah, question and raise awareness of maybe areas we've turned ourselves into machines over the years and how we can sort of make a shift away from that. So um, yeah, I guess that the place I'd love to start is just with your story, like where and when was your interest in neuropsychology um, born and where's that sort of path led you along uh, and yeah where where has it led you to today yeah so you know i started off um maybe in my uh, late teens uh, after the death of my father i just became really neurotic I was almost in a constant state of panic and just thinking i was going to die every second wow. it was a really strange way to live when I look back on it. Uh, and it actually became somewhat normal because it, it had persisted for so many years. And then I thought, <clears throat> I mean, it almost seemed the most uh, obvious major for me if I went to college would be, you know, psychology, thinking, well, there's got to be some trick to all this, right? You know, I mean, you get yourself in a mess, there's got to be some way to get out. And in grad school, it was popular, you know, particularly in the late 90s, everyone thought the brain held all the mysteries to what it meant to be human. If we unravel the brain, all the secrets will be revealed. So it made sense to go into some kind of neuro field. So ended up in a lab that studied left-right brain differences, which was really cool. I, I mean, grad school, was, and I was making some progress. I mean, there's a lot of, you start realizing neurochemical states and, and, and you realize, well, the brain's just kind of doing its thing. And then you learn about the nervous system and, you know, you're in this fight or flight response. And, and it definitely helped, but it wasn't, it wasn't doing the whole job. And so in grad school, I ended up getting more involved in Eastern philosophy. And I remember reading Alan Watts and he just particularly just blew me away. It's just like, you know, in fact, I'd say to this day, he's, if I had one type of mentor, uh, it would probably be Alan Watts. And I don't know if it, it was his way of explaining things, uh, his integration, how, how, you know, Alan could talk about, uh, 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 so many, so it's a broad range of Eastern philosophies, and and he gets to really just the core, and 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 this question of what it means to be human, he seems to get at it in so many different ways. I was just very attracted to everything he said, so I ended up reading it. It's, it's not just that I read everything he wrote. I, I read some of the things like this is it. I, I I don't know how many times, countless times, and every time I find something deeper in it. 
And it was really at that time when all of a sudden, uh, it was late 90s again, and uh, you would find these neural people suddenly, they were really interested in, 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 in Eastern philosophy and what happens when you meditate and what happens to the brain when you meditate and 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 just remarkable findings where here in the west we thought well attention is incredibly limited and 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 that's what we, we thought we were studying attention about humans like all humans not just people in the west and we and we were just totally wrong because these monks had almost unlimited ability when it came to attention and so we i mean people had to rewrite the textbooks and say well attention is limited if you don't practice it with meditation <laughs> but if you practice it with meditation everything changes and then all these all this work about the brain rewiring and so i got deep into meditation i got deep into um just looking at different states of consciousness and realizing that everything i had been experiencing was just one limited state of consciousness and 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 and, and fundamentally uh shifting from being that quivering mess uh, of neurosis to become the becoming the observer of all that and and it's for so many people that seems to be fundamental for their change in experience you know you've got we've got so many identities floating around and and consciousness gets very attracted to certain identities and the left brain is so good at manufacturing these identities and shifting from that to being the observer at least for me was really the transformative trick of most of this and uh, and was quite a bit of time went by, and then I, I wrote um, my first uh, book was self-published. It was called, I, you know, very long title, "The Neurotic's Guide to Avoiding Enlightenment," <laughs> and it actually did okay. And then it got picked up by a traditional publisher, and and then uh, "No Self, No Problem" came out, and now we're coming up with the workbook on it. It'll be out in the next month, and so uh, it's been a really interesting adventure. So, what inspired? in particular um no self no problem you know you you say one of the key questions of of that book is where is the self when no one is thinking about it i really love that question um could you just maybe kind of unpack what that means um and a little bit about that well i think for some people the self uh it just kind of works for them and and they they go through life and you know and and they they have an identity and and it kind of works and 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 they go through you know maybe job in advertising or job in you know insurance or something and 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 the the whole self thing just doesn't ever really cause them a whole bunch of problems, but for so many of us, the concept of the self just it it it's behind all of our problems. I mean, what do we lay awake at night thinking about our problems? So our problems are so tied into the self-concept. And for me, that like I was terrified that the self was going to die and without ever really looking to see what the self even was. And so you start doing this uh, introspection. You know, what happens with people in their 20s? And they start, you know, what am I afraid of? You know, uh, and, and, and what am I afraid of losing? And then when you start doing that type of an, of an examination, you realize that the self is just a story that the brain is telling and, and there's no substance to it. I mean, that's the interesting thing about the self. When you ask, who am I? You can't find it. You, all you find are stories, you know, and, and there's so, so tied in with uh, language, you know, because we have our names and, and categories because we see ourselves as male or female or, or, or some kind of job title, which is another social construct. And, and you start thinking, well, uh, you know, who am I when I'm not thinking? 
you know, when I'm not involved in all these social categories, when I'm not, uh, I mean, there's no reality to them. And, and, and there's no reality to your job. You know, you say, well, you know, I work for this insurance company. Well, where's the insurance company when no one's thinking about it? You know, it just disappears and it's just a building. And, and so, uh, you know, all these social constructs sort of fall apart under analysis. And then you, there's this realization that who I was conceiving myself of was also one of these social constructs that was mostly just taught to me from culture. And then you say, well, okay, well, what's left? And and that's a big difference here with the West and the East and in, in, in Western science, uh, and particularly neuroscience, they, they deconstruct the self too, but there's nothing left. But in the East, you deconstruct the self and then there's this consciousness, this this mystery to the thinking mind, this awareness and and uh, and for me, that that's the path that I, I I realized was underneath all of it, and it's a very peaceful place where there are no problems, and so it becomes extremely um, uh, you know a, a nice place to call home. And then you come back, and of course, like you do a podcast, and of course I'm Chris, and you know, of course I have a car that I call mine, and you know, it'd be weird if I just drove away in my neighbor's car. So you know, you, you still follow the rules you know, you, you get it, you know, you just don't buy into it deeply. And so, you don't. I mean, that's the funny thing is some people worry if you lose your mind, you're going to just start, you're just, the chaos will ensue and you'll just go, you know, running randomly around in the streets. And I just don't think, you know, people just don't do that. They, they see through the self-illusion and they, they are met with a deep sense of peace and, and, and then almost a, a more, you know, respect for these basic social constructs and rules. And, you know, you don't like, I know my, my neighbor doesn't really own his car and that's just a social con. It's an agreement. It's a fantasy and a collective hallucination, but that doesn't mean I'm going to go just take it. <laughs> so, you know, you respect these, these kind of uh, rules of society and, and, and end up living more harmoniously with them. So, uh, you know, you lose your mind and uh, all kinds of really good things seem to happen rather than, uh, you know, uh, things we'd need to worry ourselves about. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And you talk mm. about the, you know, it's a, a balance that you're trying to get between left brain and right brain. It's not that you want to live all of your life in the in that right brain sort of state. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the, because you just um, kind of brought to mind the story of the, is it the, there was a researcher in the 90s who sort of ended up, like with the separation of left brain and right brain and I can't remember her name, but um, I'm sure you <laughs> can tell that story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the main things that attracted me to all the left right brain research is that uh, Gazaniga and Rogers Berry, they did the split brain research and, and it was yeah. a really uh, reasonable, but drastic insight because people were having seizures and that seizure activity because we really do have two brains i mean people there's a big argument you know that we have one brain and of course we do in a way because it's working holistically but anatomically the left brain even has its own blood supply so they really are physically it's one of the most obvious things when you look at a brain it's like mm -hmm. well there's a left side and a right side and then there's this huge connection of maybe 100 million nerve fibers called the cor corpus callosum that connects them so these surgeons thought, well, if you have a seizure, it usually has a focal point. It starts in one side of the brain, but then it spreads across that corpus callosum, and then the whole brain is seizuring. So they thought, let's just cut the corpus callosum. And it's, uh, you know, pretty radical surgery. But the surprising thing is how little happened once they cut it. I mean, patients mm -hmm. didn't experience a change in consciousness. And in fact, it wasn't until 
uh, they tried to get back into ordinary life that they realized that uh, they had this split brain syndrome where it was like, you know, because the left brain controls the right hand and the right side of the body mm. and the right brain controls the left. So there's this cross wiring, which I've never heard a good explanation of why nature would cross wire something. I mean, it's a, it's a strange setup, architecturally speaking. But uh, so, so you'd find all this conflict where the left hand would like stories of uh, this patient who was, you know, uh, just channel surfing with the left hand and would find something on TV. And then the other hand would come and change the channel or a patient who was smoking and, you know, light up and start smoking a cigarette. And then the right hand would come and put it out. And so they thought, well, this is kind of interesting. So they brought them back in the lab and then they found out really there's, this is a great way to study the isolated left brain and right brain. And mm. people went in now, you know, years and, uh, you know, 30 years, 40 years of research behind it now, it's absolutely clear that we really are living with two really fundamentally different modes of processing the world. And then, and we're, um, and we could shift back and forth between them. And uh, one of the things I get, because people say, oh, you're not into that left-right brain stuff, are you? And, and so the left-right brain stuff also took a hit because um, in some ways it got too popular. And 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 then people thought it was just too much of a simplification. So there came about this this other uh, kind of a movement that said, "Oh, it's all a myth. It's all right. a myth." And um, so there's a lot of people who are under this impression that look, the left right brain thing is just a myth. They're, they really don't differ. And for those, I'd actually suggest, you know, Ian McGilchrist wrote an amazing book, The Master and His Emissary. And if you ever want convincing, I mean, it's I think it's 600 pages of thousands of pieces of data really well done scientifically. And if that doesn't convince you that there are fundamental uh, modes of uh, different modes of processing reality that exist in the left and right sides of the brain, I mean, nothing will. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing a comeback now where people are realizing like, yeah, okay, there really are not just, you know, simple perceptual, but really fundamental different ways uh, of uh, like, we've got these, you know, categorical identities and that's a real left brain mode of processing mm. so if i see myself as a male or if i see myself as, as a certain age or if i see myself as an athlete or a non-athlete all these simple categorical distinctions that are, we're drawn to in terms of our identity those are all left brain and then you get into this right brain mode of processing and it's more attracted to not knowing it's more attracted to mystery it's more attracted to this mo this this possibility that i am fundamentally a mystery that i can't nail down and that's a very interesting way to live it's it's mm. for me it's a it's a much more um satisfying and the meaning of our lives come from that kind of mode i mean you can't find you can find a little bit you you can try you can say well i'm an athlete and, and or i'm an accountant and you can find some meaning in that but that's all going to that's going to pass by very quickly and it can be taken away very quickly see any of these little things you attach to the self from the left brain and if you become uh, identified with them and you can lose them at any minute. And then people, you know, people are really rich. And so that's their identity. And then their money's gone. And then they're left with this like, well, who am I? <laughs> and so uh, that right mode of processing, it's it's far more eternal. It's mysterious. It's non-material. Um, and it's not categorical. And so when we think, we think in categories. So most of our thinking, at least in my version, is left brain. The, the most... The mode that most people go through from morning to night is this left brain thinking mode, which is dividing the world into these very fundamental categories. 
and that's fine. Um, but what the what my what no self no problem attempts, but what, what the goal of the book was, and and definitely the goal of this uh, workbook that's coming out, because I mean you can only philosophize so much about this, and so we, it's it's far better to go with experience and let the reader directly experience these mm -hmm. through exercises, and um, and when you do that, there's a shift, and you you can really feel a shift where you could start recognizing and valuing these modes of right hemisphere processing and and we have them you know I, I enjoy if you're driving to work and you see someone and they're they've got the radio cranked up and they're just singing you know i mean that's a great right mode of processing but they get to work and then the left brain turns back on and they say well how was your drive in they're like oh i zoned out and we just think you know what the right most right brain modes of processing are looked at as zoned out zombie but they're not they're they're, they're really genuine uh important necessary modes to completing the picture of what it means to be human mm. yeah it's so fascinating and i suppose it's it's present as well isn't it that that right brain mode of operating that when you're zoned out on the way to work it's actually you're completely in that moment in flow whatever however you might describe it and yeah and then the left brain is maybe focused on future and past and it, it's unable to sort of really access that present yeah, I think that's a great way to put it because the left brain is always interested in changing and manipulating the world. And and so you need some kind of past memory of, okay, well, here's how it was and here's how I want it to be. Mm -hmm. And so it's always in that mode of, uh, you know, making more money or getting that other uh, higher position at work or or maybe I'm not in a relationship. So it wants to be, you know, it wants well, things will be good when I'm in a relationship or things will be good when I'm not in a relationship. You know, so it goes, it's always living in that uh future because it and it's very interesting and in fact Ian McGilchrist actually pointed this out in his book I thought it was a really important uh, thing that our culture can recognize is that most of us about 80 percent of us are right-handed and that of course is controlled by the left brain and we've really changed and manipulated the world through our dominant right hand we've created things all in fact e even artificial intelligence all these things are one could say are have been created and manipulated uh, through the use of our dominant right hand from simple tools. And it's very interesting that um, even if you take a modern person and 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 you you get them to start making tools and you get them to even, even use their left hand, it doesn't matter. The left brain lights up because the left brain loves mm -hmm. that. Like, let's make a tool and change things. <laughs> yeah. But the right brain is just far more content with like, it's okay, you know, uh, and and that's what's so wonderful about music, you know. You don't know, imagine if you listen to music trying to get to the end, that would be weird. <laughs> you know? No, you know, music immediately puts you into this right. Every note right now is what I'm doing, mm -hmm. and um, I think it was Alan Watts who said, you know, we play music, you know, but yeah. we go to work, and so <laughs> yeah. you know those, that. In my view, that really reflects the two sides of the brain. Uh, the the right hemisphere plays; it's in the moment. It's like a kid, you know. Kids, mm -hmm. kids aren't. Hopefully, they're not worried about what what they're going to do when they grow up. They're just they're just playing yeah. and having fun in the moment. And um, and this left brain, yeah, particularly in some cultures, it gets so. Mo you know, you, you. I mean, I was surprised to see my kids, and uh, you know, and I always encourage them. You know, lots of right brain stuff, but they live in a left brain culture. So they would start asking me questions like in 10, like, dad, what am I going to do? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do when you grow when you grow up and get older. I mean, just, you know, have some fun now and, and it'll work out. And that's, mm. you know, 
sort of the, the right hemisphere has a certain i always look at it as trust in the universe mm -hmm. it, it knows that things are going to be okay and that left brain is always you know it's part of evolution it had to be paranoid and it had to be it had to look at the worst possible scenario and so when i look back on my like really bad neurosis when i was 19 it was all left my left brain i'd love to get into a brain scan because my left brain was probably just off the charts you know mm. so the right brain it's almost a present but also patient so it's like it doesn't it's not urgent in the sense of i need answers i need the category of what am i going to do when i grow up it's mm -hmm. no this will you'll find that like it's that you don't have to sort of be forcing that right now kind of reminds yeah. me of um I was staying with uh, my sister and and her kids earlier this week and I was playing with one of the, my nephews is three years old and we were just you know I have an absolute blast with him playing with cars and stuff like that and we were playing after breakfast before he went had to go to sort of preschool nursery and I was really struck by the fact he has no concept of time. So he, if he was, if we were relying on him to get himself ready to go to nursery at the right time, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> so he's just so present in that moment of I'm playing now. And then somebody else has to come along and, you know, right, get your coat on, get your shoes on. We're off we go. Um, and I, I, I'm just really struck by that sense of, I guess it's the inner child part of us and that, that right brain flow that we all have in us i think um and part of me was thinking you know obviously you like you need to take responsibility for yourself like you can't be relying on other people to get you wherever you need to go at different times but we can create conditions around our lives for that sort of thing to happen um and you know i was th thinking about you know where how what is that balance between left brain and right brain like taking responsibility, organizing ourselves, but then just allowing the space for the right brain stuff to, to happen, whether it's in that, on that drive to work or, uh, you know, playing a musical instrument, whatever it might be. Um, and to think in creating conditions, I, have you got any sort of thoughts around how to make space for more of that stuff? Yeah, so um, one of my practices I used to do with my students a lot to get them to recognize that they actually are in these right brain modes of processing more than they think they are. And so I would have them put post-it notes, and this actually comes from uh, Susan Blackmore, who's a really well-known consciousness researcher. And uh, she would have her students write around, like leave notes everywhere, was I conscious? You know, okay. and, and I'm like, look, I, th I actually think you're always conscious, but most of us get in this mode of thinking. So what I do is I have my students put these post-it notes everywhere you can, put every, like, was I just thinking? And what happens is, is we get in these modes of thinking and, and, and we value thinking, you know, going back to, you know, the Western idea of Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And that just sort of sums it up, you know, thinking defines Western existence. And we think we're thinking, and this gets a little deep here, but we think we're thinking all the time. But what we miss are, those moments of presence and, and the, the playful moments and the thinking mind comes back on. And like I was saying before, it just says, oh, well, I was just zoned out. But if you put these little post-it notes everywhere, what you'll start catching is there's a lot of times in your life. I mean, you're, you, you don't think as much as you think you think. And so, and so our natural humanity comes about more than we think. And so we actually are in these modes of play. And, 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 that's a, and when you recognize that, 
you, you're like, oh, it's, it's really a transformative thing. You're going, you can go, well, I'm not as serious as I thought I was about this life thing, you know? And, um, <clears throat> and I've got, I'm, I've got more play in me than I thought. And, and I, I don't know who came up with this, but it's a wonderful expression. They said, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Mm. And so for some of us who've just, you know, gotten all serious and that, anytime you're serious, that's the left brain. The left brain is terribly serious about all this trip we call humanity. And, and the right brain is far more playful. So if you put these, was I just thinking, you'll notice you, there's a lot of every day where you're not thinking and, and you are present. Uh, you just don't know it because the thinking mind comes back online and it just assumes, it, you know, I always think of the left brain thinking mind as someone who goes to a party, you know, and they show up late, but they don't think the party started till they got there, you know, <laughs> so, you know, the left brain is always viewing things from its reality and it's, and it's, well, if I wasn't thinking, then nothing happened, but we have this, these wonderful, mysterious moments that are happening to us all the time. And people say, well, you, you know, be in the present moment, be in the present. Well, you are, there's a part of you that actually is, it's more, it's not trying to be present. It's recognizing that some of you already is present mm -hmm. and getting in touch with that. And, and, and it's a balance, like you said, you know, the Taoism, you know, yin and yang, you see so many people um, have tattoos. I've seen dozens, dozens of people with tattoos of the yin yang symbol and, and you really kind of get a conversation going like, well, what's that all about? And and they can't really articulate it. They're, they're not philosophers. They just know that there's something that symbol is very, it represents that harmony of the two worlds and, and how the two worlds reflect each other. And and so, um, you know, yeah, it was a really good point you made. Like the book isn't out there saying like, let's just, you know, destroy let's just get rid of everything in the left brain and uh, it's more integrating it in into into a balanced life mm. Mm. yeah I love, I love that and it, it it's the it's the fascinating thing about having a conversation like this because obviously we're it's a very left brain trying to talk about this stuff mm. um and uh, you kind of reference that quote of you can't get there from here um, and this th that sense that even if the left brain uh, wants to go beyond itself, it can only go deeper into itself. Um, and this is some this is a point at which I think a lot of people um, get sort of blocked at um, where you, you're sort of trying to find that perfect solution. You're trying to find how can I be more right brain? And it's obviously the left brain that's, yeah. that's kind of doing that job. Um, how do I, how do I meditate in the perfect way? How do I do this? And, and I think sometimes we're, where we maybe need to look sort of structurally, we're looking at the, whether it's the storytelling or the, the surface of what we're doing. Um, and that's where I was kind of fascinated by the, one of the last exercises in the book, which is like the, who am I thing? Um, and you ask those questions like, am I, um, the name someone gave to me? Am I the gender that was assigned to me? Am I the job that I work at? Am I the social roles that I play? And so on. And I think sometimes we look at those questions and think, no, I'm not. Therefore, I must be have the wrong name or I must have, you know, the wrong job or whatever, as opposed to thinking, oh, no, it's not that that actually defines me. Like it's not the that whole category. It's not, you know, and you've talked about the categorization of 
of things and the interpreter of everything as well. Um, and I find, yeah, I find that just, it's, it's one of those like, well, how do we, how do you, how do you get through to it, through that? Because you're using your left brain to do yeah. so. Um, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because the, the subtitle of my first, the self-published book was um, how the left brain plays unending games of self-improvement. And <laughs> yes. you see this really with the spiritual world, you know, I've gotten to know so many people who are on this trip of spirituality. And that's a really interesting thing pointed out, you know, perfectly uh, that the left brain has a lot of ways of playing these games to make it look like it's not the left brain, you know, like, like, and then, and that's one of the things that spiritual, the spiritual practices. And, and I totally get this. When I started meditating, I, I, I think I made every mistake. I, I did every left brain meditation you could possibly do. I would meditate and I would time it. And I'm like, well, I'm going to meditate longer tomorrow. And I'm going to, you know, <laughs> You know, how long can I stay in this state of meditation? And that, of course, was all just left the left brain pretending to be what it isn't, which is what the left brain excels at. And when you think about something like language, which is great and useful, and we're using it right now, and it's, it's super helpful. This would be really difficult to do this without language. But language pulls off, and of course, language, the left brain is the main place for language. And, mm. and it pulls off this amazing trick where words become what they're not. I mean, this is just like, you know, ripples in the air, but yet they become everything they're not. They become, you know, we, we, we put so much meaning into them. And, um, and so you can, and you can get very tied into that. I mean, you know, people get very obsessed with language and, uh, and, and in Zen and, and in the East, they, they're very clear about this, you know, don't confuse a symbol with the thing, you know, finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. And so one of the main points of Zen and Eastern philosophy, so many Eastern philosophies is to get us, help us not to make that left brain trick. Don't confuse the symbol with the thing. And of course they didn't go into the neuroscience of it, but if they, if they did, that's what, that's where they'd go. They'd say, look, the left brain creates these symbols and, and it gets confused you know, if, you, if you're staying in that left brain world, it's the whole point is to take the symbol seriously. And that's why words hurt. I mean, if someone starts saying really nasty things to you, you feel bad because you're, you're taking those words at a very serious level. And so, um, uh, it's a great question. You know, how do we stop playing these, these, these games? And then you, then the left brain is so clever at this. Cause I went through all this in my early twenties and, um, the left brain would say, well, I'm going to stop playing these games, you know, and, but if that's another form of the game. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, and so, um, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's the left brain seems to be able to go so deep in, into what we would call spirituality, its form of what it's thinking about mm -hmm. spirituality. And so, um, uh, the workbook goes quite a bit into this and, and, and if you're thinking like, so what is spirituality? You know, and, and one way we could at least start to get on a path of of, of not figuring it out. I think it's going. There's a fundamental mystery to spirituality that can never be articulated. But one of the ways that we could get there a little bit is to just recognize what it isn't. And and so at least for me, if you're in the thinking mode, uh, you're in the left brain mode, and 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 it's not that that isn't spiritual too. <laughs> you yeah. know, when we get to we get fundamentally down to consciousness. And, and then we could say, well, you know, why is all this happening? Well, this material world, bodies, and, and it's all manifestation of consciousness. So you realize that like, and this is where the non-duality part kicks in, because you're like, 
you know, everything about the world feels very dualistic. You know, I feel really separate from you and I feel separate from the stuff around me. So where's all that coming from? Well, you know, fundamentally, it, it, it's 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 non-dualistic reality playing what it isn't. And, and then you have to get into, okay, so when you get into that, you realize that even all these tricks I'm playing on myself, fundamentally, it's just fun that I'm having. <laughs> so um, in, 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 at the very uh, end of the workbook, I, I, I look into this, I don't know, you know, escape rooms are, are really popular, at least here in the US. And yeah, they are. You, have over, you have escape rooms in the UK yeah. too? Yeah, so maybe it's just a world thing. It's just weird that they popped up, you know. And people go in and and they, you know, have to find these clues to get out, and 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 so they pay money to do this, you know. So it must be fun to be lost and then try to find your way home. And so fundamentally, I see that as the metaphor for what our human existence is about. Mm. You know, consciousness just got lost, and it gets lost in all of us. It gets lost in these left brain stories. But we've left ourselves clues, very interesting clues, and you know, things like right brain processing, and and um, clues that you know, so many clues about the material world. Like you know, you start looking at matter, and it's not at all what it, it's not solid. It's almost ninety nine point nine percent empty. There's nothing yeah. solid about matter. And then you look at time. I mean, we live in the past and the future, at least the left brain does, but then there's nothing but the present moment. So there's all these clues that uh, take us back home. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you can't help getting into that more fun mode of like, wow, maybe I am in an escape room. And so like, like, so I, you know, I could look back at my neurosis in my, when I was 19 and say, oh, that was so much suffering. And, you know, woe was me? And, you know, here's my, sad story or i could look at it as like wow i got into this really cool escape room where i i thought i was neurose totally neurotic but all that was just a huge clue that helped me get this key so i got out of this room and like <laughs> and then there's another room and you know and um but you know that's the fun of it i think that's such a lovely way of framing framing that i love that yeah can't wait to get the workbook it's, it's gonna be really helpful as a as a route into that sort of right brain. Well, the stuff. first book, so many people told me they liked the exercises. And I think mm. the reason they like the exercises is because, you know, like I said so many times, you can't think your way out of a thinking problem. So mm. I did not want to just put like, oh, here's some clever thoughts. And I, so I just thought, well, let's, you know, let's put some exercise after exercise. And um, I mean, just simple, like, like, what, it starts off with a really simple one. So I'll give your audience, it's like one of the simplest exercises. So like, I'll, like the left brain is great at patterns. That's what it does. That's that creates categories and it um, creates these identities. And so, uh, and it's the voice in the head. And we we know this. I mean, there's a little area called Broca's area that even when you're talking to yourself, it lights up. So when you're just talking to yourself, it, it, it's the left brain kind of doing its thing. But and it's so easy to identify with that. So, so much of, um, particularly in the West, so many of us, we, we just identify with that voice in the head and we're just assuming mm -hmm. it's who we are. And one of the things the workbook does, and, and really no self, no problem, really, one of the main things it does is to help you help recognize that you're far more vast and uh, eternal and non-conceptual than what the left brain will tell you. And so anyway, the exercise, you just, I'm going to say the beginning of a pattern. All I want you to do is just not complete it in your head. So like if I say one, two, you know, you probably heard three in your head. Mm. <laughs> if I go three, two, I mean, you probably heard one. 
And then it's really hard not to get that to happen. Yeah. And so, you know, you do these and, and and these types of exercises and it shows it how like that left brain is kind of it's 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 not really who we are. And it's almost like a computer program. So I actually uh, call it Mind 1.0 because <laughs> I find it to be like, you know, maybe 50,000 years ago or so humans became obsessed with thinking. And we're not really sure if it was like a, this big brain growth that happened or maybe it was a genetic mutation, but we just started thinking a lot. And mm. and so, uh, and it sets us so apart in, in this world, you know? I mean, like, like we have a dog, uh, a little... Um, dog that runs around and barks and, and does all this stuff but um he you know it's pretty clear he doesn't think very much he does so there's definitely animal cognition he does think but you know every time we take him for a walk he gets his leash caught around mailboxes and there's no he can't not he can't figure it out if he would just back <laughs> up he'd be able to get out of this mess <laughs> so we always have to go and take the leash and you know and he'll get caught up in it over and that's because he does think but his his thinking is limited, and this shows one of the really uh, blessings of thinking. You know, we are humans. We have this really advanced thinking that figures out problems like that. A kid figures that out. A kid figures out, oh, you just have to back up, and you're you know you can undo uh, the whole problem. And uh, so it really is a blessing if we learn to use it the right way. And you know, so the book goes you know, says over and over again, you know, is the mind using you? Are you using the mind? Mm -hmm. And when you get that things to me, the balance is realizing that the mind is a really good tool when you use it in the right way. And so, you know, really um, helpful in, in, in situations that it evolved for, you know, getting us out of these types of problems. And, um, but, but you don't want to live there <laughs> and, and it can't figure out the big, uh, mysteries of life. It's there. It's really like a survival tool for for the body, and, mm -hmm. and and its main goal is to just get you know more DNA you know replicated, and you know and 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 so it's a very survival evolutionary based thing, but that's not the totality of what it means to be human. I mean, there are the mysteries of consciousness and and the mysteries of you know we we start asking questions like, do we have a soul? Is there something you know um, more than just my thinking? Hmm. yeah it kind of reminds me of um i think i, I don't know he, he probably takes it from someone else but david lynch talks about the difference between like mysteries and secrets and how we you know like life fundamentally is mysterious there's all this mystery that isn't like findable but a secret is something that's being held from you i, I suppose like in the context of the escape room there's somebody who's created that escape room um, so they know what the secret things are around there but yeah the idea of mystery is more there are things it's like baked into the core of existence the core of the universe itself is mysterious and like thinking about that difference between the symbol don't confuse the symbol from the thing itself like the moment that you get to the thing itself you realize as you say, it's full of nothingness. There's the vast majority of it is empty space. So it's a, a thing full of like, I guess, negative space in a sense, like it's a, um, and that's part of everything. Um, and yeah, it's just holding that, holding mystery as not something to solve, but as something to play with and to 
enjoy if possible yeah yeah i mean just bringing up nothingness that you know that, that that there's so many tricks that we can get into that take us away from thinking and one of the really interesting things about empty space is you can't think about it i mean you could mm -hmm. sit around and go well let me you know and that's that's why you remember as a kid you could think well the universe like if it had an end to it what's beyond it yeah. you know there's got to be you know uh and so empty space is always like intrigued the thinking mind because the thinking mind can't grasp it. Mm -hmm. You know, every time it thinks it, it's, and then it's like, no, it's empty. And so, and, but then the, the real cool part of this is when you uh, get in like some of the old um, uh, sutras in Buddhism and, you know, void is form and form is void. And, and, and then you start realizing that because the left brain loves to focus on things it focuses on all the objects of the world that it's given an, 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 a name to. But right brain awareness is so much more into the emptiness and, and the space. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that you need the space. Like the space is as important as the thing. Like if you take away space right now, we instantly zoom down to that infinitesimally small point before the Big Bang. <laughs> so, so space is like super important. And um, so that negative is just as important as the positive. And, and, and that's, a, again, to get back into that playful mode, you realize like, you know, um, like one of the things we have here in, in the West, we, we, you know, we, we always say, have a good day, you know, and, 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 and I don't know if that's a Western thing. It seems like, it seems like most of the places I've traveled, like, you know, um, it's not just the U.S. thing, but it's like, you know, have a good, and, it, and it's like, yeah. we're always emphasizing, like, look, let's have the positive. And we don't realize how, important some of the bad days are and so and, and how the bad days really make the good days much better and and so you know i always tell people just have the day you're going to have and they look at me kind of strange i'm like, like you know <laughs> the bad days and when you when you get that in the same way that you can recognize empty space is important for the things around us you can recognize that the bad days are really just as important as the good days because like it's like if you like i'm here in um, western pennsylvania and in fact, it's uh, a, a really uh, a wintry day. It's cold, um, and you might say, "Oh, what a, what, what a bad day!" Mm. And but really, if if you didn't have this day, a seventy, uh, you know, when the sun comes out and it's warm, it wouldn't mean anything. And and people who move to places in the world where it's like like there are places in California where it's like seventy degrees every day, and there are no more nice days because they're all nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, you know. Instead of being completely obsessed all the time with chasing the good, uh, I, th I think, the, and this is again tied in with the right brain's mode of processing, because when you get to attention, the left brain's mode is very narrow. So it only focuses, it, it's like, well, let's just go for the good. So let's have every day good, every day better than, than, than yesterday. But the right brain gets it that like, no, you know, that's not the way good and bad work. They're, they're, they're like the yin and yang symbol. Each one gives rise to the other's existence. So, um, so that, that's it's it's a it's a nice way to uh, be in the moment because because when we have a bad day, we say, okay, um, you know, uh, what can I do to make it good? Like we're always trying to manipulate and change things, and that's that left brain just trying to like you know get in its mode of processing and and, and controlling reality, but. The right brain being far more accepting and recognizing. See, the right brain's attention is vast. It's much more global. And it, and, it, and it can perceive how good days and bad days are interrelated. 
Mm. Like if you really, you know, the whole, you take away the bad days, the good days go with them. And so, you know, the, the right brain gets the this dance between the good and the bad. And so mm. that's a really different way. Uh, so you say, oh, I'm having a bad day. And I've done, and this is a great practice. You say, oh, I'm having a bad day. Great. I, I hope today's bad. If today's kind of a bad day, like I'm like the snow outside, good, let it be freezing. Because that means, you know, when the first warm day is going to be even more amazing. Yeah. I love that way of thinking. Yeah. So it reminds me of like, for me, some of the best days, for example, a, a great day that I is vividly etched on my mind is when I found my passport because I'd lost my passport. So it was like the worst day I was supposed to be getting a getting a plane the next day and i was like i cannot find my passport anywhere um and then finding it eventually it did require me to find it but made that day an amazing day because it suddenly the value of that item that i took for granted suddenly became very explicitly there in front of me um it's like losing your wallet and then finding your wallet and it's like suddenly that becomes such a valuable item that you just wander around most of the time with it in your pocket, not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I really love, I'm kind of thinking, okay, exercises around that sort of thing, how to make the things that are around me all the time, how to just kind of remind myself of their value in my life. Um, and obviously you can do kind of gratitude things, but I think it it's when you're confronted with actual loss and you can't really force that. <laughs> it just mm -hmm. sort of, it happens in those moments. But like then taking that moment to appreciate, okay, that losing that thing has made that thing just so valuable and my awareness of the value of it. So yeah. present. That's a great, I think that's almost, you know, that's life. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that's our human trip. And, yeah. and the human trip is, and for me, I, I don't know, uh, if this ever happened to you, but you know, like you ever look for your phone everywhere and then you realize it's in your hand and then, <laughs> yes, and then you can't help but to kind of laugh, yeah, yeah. you know, and you're kind of, and, and I think that defines our human existence. It's, Absolutely. you know, we, we got lost, we lose things. We put, we put suffering into the equation on purpose. Mm. We put it in there. So people, again, were like, why suffering? And, and, um, and, but, but the suffering is in there because it's a clue. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a clue that, you know, if, if, if you don't have suffering, then, then the happiness goes along with it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a different mode of processing because the left brain, again, it's so analytical. It wants to take things apart and, and it believes that it's, it's like, like it's a puzzle and, and there's going to be some way that I can get rid of the bad and then only have the good. Mm. And the right brain is far more aware that the two are interrelated and depend on each other. And, and, and that really changes, like, you know, the way you put it, it's so interesting because like, you know, the next time you lose your passport, yes, you still, you know, you could still freak out a little bit, but you're also going to remember, like, it's a different mode of processing. You're like, oh, if I, if I, you know, when I find it, you know, the joy that happens with that has to happen because this happened, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that, yes. And yeah, again, you're saying that yin yang thing, like, this actually gives rise to that the, the that elevated joy relies on the fact that there's not there's suffering yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's really interesting i mean if i mean very clear to me now 
And I thought, again, it, when I was 19, I thought, if you really feel cursed, you feel like you're being like, why me? Why am I being punished? Because, you know, just continuous neurosis and worrying about death and all that. And uh, just no joy because it, it's, it's you're, you know, you're, you're experiencing the one side of the equation right then. And then you don't realize that, that like, I, if I could go back, I, like, imagine I could go back and just have that taken away. I would have, ne I would never do that. Mm -hmm. I would never have given up. Uh, that suffering because it led me to really amazing places. I mean, without that suffering, I would have never written any of these books. I would have never gotten to a place to recognize uh, the balance, this this really interesting balance we have in this in this world mm -hmm. between the good and the bad, and between um, uh, you know, it's it, it's almost like it's set up, like I said, an escape room. But it, it, there's so many interesting things to it, like 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 near-death experiences are fascinating and but we never you know we get clues and and when you get into it, it's like you can really be like wow that's really interesting but it's never the smoking gun we never really get like the absolute verification of what happens when we die and so mm -hmm. again it's just like that it's always you know it, it, it's like a very clever escape room and so you know you get to know just a little bit and you get to have these experiences and non-dual non experiences are just, you know, remarkable um, and, and, and very comforting. And, but then the duality kicks in again and, and then the skepticism kicks in and, and, you know, the fact that we hallucinate and it's, it's a wonderful, cause then you're like, you're never quite sure. So, so, so this is really this an escape room in the sense that we're always living in that sense of mystery. Now the left brain loves certainty so the left brain can't embrace that mystery, but the right brain can. And um, there's actually a couple of papers about uh, the right brain uh, really wanting, desiring uncertainty. And and, and that's, that's right. you know, and again, you could get that balance going. And it's a, it's a really, um, at least I found a pretty cool way to live. To, oh, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Awesome. I don't know. Mm -hmm. like, And that's one of the things I've always loved about doing podcasts and interviews. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, the left brain freaks out because, you know, it wants to know, you know, it wants rules and it wants, mm -hmm. to, you know, predictability. That's its whole game. Yeah. But the real game is the, is embracing the, 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 I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I really am. You know, I don't really know what's going to happen after death. I don't really, you know, all these mysteries that we, that we've, you know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen when we're done with this, you know, and yeah, it's just, yeah. and that's a, you know, and it just, there's a certain truth to that. You really don't. And, um, and, and the left brain just excels in the joy with that. Mm. Which again is, you know, like when you think about experiences through life, the most uh, enjoyable, the most memorable moments are those that are infused with uncertainty that mm -hmm. like an improvisation or spontaneity it like who know who knows where this is going to go and then you know oh we ended up there and we did mm -hmm. all of this and th they're the profound things that you probably remember on your deathbed and mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah like, yeah no one no one is you know concluding this the physicality of this life and then they look back and all all the routine and predictability and like you know we'd like you know, and that's the thing is when I say we, one of the things in the book, there's that one exercise about how many yous you have in yeah. a day. And I think it's another very important insight that, you know, the left brain constructs this, it, the left brain loves consistency and it loves coherency and it loves um, uh, 
oneself. And so when it tells the story of the self, it wants her to be one, mm-hmm. one constant self. And it's and, it, and it's the constant self since I was a kid. Is like and there's a sense we feel this. Like you know, it feels like I was the same person when I was five. Is like there's some continuity and. The whole lecture the Buddha did, the no, the no self lecture, was uh, pointing this out. Like, what, if you really examine the fluctuations in the self, you'll realize it has no continuity at all. Like the the, the different selves pop up. Like, like here we have a certain self that we're using, you know, and it's working, and you know, it's great, you know. But like, you know, as soon as this is over, then another self will come online and then another self will come. And it's like so many selves Mm -hmm. and some of these selves are happy. Some of them are not happy. Some of them like all of a sudden an angry self might, you know, come online, but the left brain wants to try to integrate all these into one coin. And it just falls apart all the time. Mm -hmm. And we even have expressions. We're like, I don't know what got into me, you know, but that's when the left brain can't work it in. And, 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 and so when you start uh, becoming aware of even during a short time, even during an hour, you can have a, a couple different selves come and go, and um, and and it's a very you know interesting uh, way to experience this reality to to, to, to embrace the fluctuation of mm-hmm. selves. And so, mm-hmm. like the the title, no self, no problem, really is like, look, there's it's not that the, I mean, obviously there's personas, there's 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 identities that happen. It's just that they're not solid they're not real they're there's little stories that come and go mm-hmm. and when you realize that then again it's just like the the bad days and the good days like you know, maybe have an angry self that comes online and then you spend the rest of the particularly spiritual people you know they, they say oh you know i got so angry and you know I, I was maybe i was mean to someone and i said something nasty and 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 then they kind of live with that for the rest of the day in in another self that's guilty about it mm. and then you just like but one of the ways that you know we always wonder what forgiveness is all about but the multiple selves view that the it's, it makes forgiveness much more possible because you realize like if i have this fluctuation of selves well everyone else does too mm. And, and 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 not all the cells are what I imagine them to be in terms of perfect. I mean, we, we're flawed and we have all kinds of different cells that come online. And so forgiveness becomes possible when we recognize that. And not just forgiving others, but it's much easier to forgive ourselves. And we're like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, well, this angry thing happened and, you know, I'm going to let it go because, you know, it's not who I am. It's just this little, you know, self that came online for five seconds, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, that's all it takes sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was so fascinating. And just kind of like mindful of time. Um, but I asked um some of my community whether they had anything they wanted me to speak to you about. Um, when I said I was talking to you and there was a question about sort of these these stories we tell ourselves and the, this left brain storyteller idea. Um, and somebody said, Yeah, like I really get how that can be an unhelpful thing um but i noticed myself pushing back from the idea that left brain functioning in that manner is all bad can't uh, can't some of our stories be good for us stories um so i wonder if you've yeah got any thoughts on how we can use stories to positively um infuse our lives i suppose use the left brain in that sense yeah i mean i mean it's an interesting one that's a very interesting question. And it's a very natural left brain question. You know, the left brain, of course, you know, wants to work itself back into the picture. <laughs> Don't and, forget about me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it wants to resume control. And you know, that all these things make sense. And and, and again, you know, 
uh, it's only, and this is one of the really strange things about, because um, I get a lot of questions. People will say, you know, um, you know, uh, I have these, these thoughts, and then I have other thoughts that are like upset with these thoughts, and and so like like back when I look at my neurosis, and I have a thought of dying in the next five seconds, but then I have another thought. It was like I can't have that thought, and and recognize like all this drama. It's all left brain drama. You know, it's, it's just mm. anytime you feel conflict, it's the left brain arguing with itself. And in the East, they'd say mind against mind. It's only mind against mind. And, and when you recognize that, then that you become the piece that's, you know, the observer of all the drama. And but it's a it's a really interesting question because, you know, it comes down to like, how do I get the mind to work? You know, when you say, well, you know, either the mind uh, you use the mind or the mind uses you. Well, how do I learn to use it as a tool? And I think that when you stop this absolute identification with all these left brain processes, what happens is uh, there is a shift and, and the right brain becomes more valued and, and it becomes more playful. And I think when that, when, when you approach it with an attitude of playfulness, you know, and, and it can't be like, look, I'm going to be very serious about being playful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, because that's just the left brain working its way in. So it has to be genuine play. When that happens, then all these left brain stories actually, they, it's like the seriousness of them becomes unplugged. And, and you can actually have quite a bit of fun with some of these left brain stories. And so I think mm. it's, it's you know, you the, the left brain stories themselves can become harmless, almost playful, if the playful side of our spirit approaches them. Mm. And in the same way that I may not take the, you know, if I have a self that comes out and it's angry and, and I'm not going to take that too seriously. Well, there maybe there's a self that comes out and, you know, it's a positive side. And, and, and so um, I'm not going to identify with it necessarily in some serious way, but, you know, Hey, you know, it, these positive stories. So, you know, um, maybe you come up with some award at work and, and, and you're feeling good about yourself. And then you, and, and, you're, and then you feel this guilt because you're like, wow, well, you know, here I am getting pulled into the self-illusion again. <laughs> and uh, well, you know, it's possible. And if, and if, you, if it's taken seriously, see, one of the really interesting teachings of the Buddha was, you know, the whole Eightfold Path and the whole, you know, Four Noble Truths is like, look, you know, suffering happens because of desire. And, and the way I take that is like, look, if you take even if you take a positive story or a negative story too seriously, you're probably going to suffer. And it's just the mechanics. And that's the wonderful thing about the Buddha's teachings. It wasn't moralistic. He never said, don't do this. He just said, look, if you do, here's the mechanics of the mind. If you do this, you're going to suffer. Mm. And so, um, and, and if you have too much desire with it. So I, again, I think, you know, the, all identities, if taken playfully, can actually uh, work out really wonderful, mm. you know? And, and, mm. and so, um, you know, I actually kind of played with the title sometimes, you know, instead of like no self, self no problem, I, no serious self no problem right. <laughs> you know so yeah, yeah. you know so the, as long as it's a playful self i i think that um you know i think it can work out pretty well mm. yeah that's really helpful yeah and it's, it's that you're talking about the the buddha teachings it's, it's kind of like the difference between description and prescription isn't it like describing the mechanics of the mind describing you know this is just how things are like it's mm -hmm. how how you hold that desire or how 
how you hold yourself, the idea of yourself in relation to the seriousness of life and mm. so on versus, um, yeah, prescriptive, like dogmatic. Yeah. You know, if you want to be, if you want to be good, which is, you know, the, there's obviously religion, religious uh, traditions that are more akin to that where it'd be, yeah, be morally upstanding. Do this, do that, do mm. that. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, just quickly to finish, if, um, I'd love to just get a sense of like what you're thinking about at the moment. Um, I know you've done a, a few videos looking at sort of artificial intelligence um, and, and that kind of thing. And, yeah, I just wonder what are the questions that you're interested in either asking yourself or hearing asked in the world more generally um, as we negotiate what it means to be human in a world of machines. <laughs> I, I, it's such a you know fascinating time to um, have, because uh, people say, well, what is artificial intelligence? And in my view, artificial intelligence is, I call it mind at 2.0, because what we've done is all of our thinking minds have gotten together. We've, we've really replicated thinking and, and and when you look at what computer programs are, uh, you know, these algorithms and uh, it, it uh, demonstrates, you know, the kind of essence of, of thinking. And so mm -hmm. I, I, the, these artificial intelligence systems, and this is one of the things that humanity is going to have to, because we say, well, you know, how do we get rid of our egos? Well, <laughs> I mean, one of the things our egos was tied into for 50,000 years is we were the main dominant thinking masters on the planet. No one could outthink us. And, you know, when people forget there were other versions of hum humans that were all kinds and only Homo sapiens, our version, survived because of our amazing thinking. So 50,000 years of dominating the planet, being the most clever thinkers on the planet, I think that's all come to an end. We no longer dominate the world in terms of thinking. Uh, artificial intelligence cannot think us. And if you don't believe it, go play a chess program. And, you, <laughs> you know, chess is an excellent example of thinking because it's strategy and it's survival and 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 trying to predict, you know, what the other person is going to do. And, and that's what the whole thinking program is about, survival. And so we are no longer the dominant thinkers on the planet. So from an ego perspective, we're going to already have to deal with that. Mm. Um, so it's already changing uh, what it means to be human because... If we're no longer the dominant thinkers, what value do we have? And so what that has, it, it, it automatically puts us in a place of going back to our right brain. And, you know, I, I had a, I have an interesting discussion on my YouTube channel that's happening right now where um, we're talking about artificial intelligence. And, and you know, if we can't think better than anyone else, and, and the AI can already outthink us, not by a small margin. I mean, AI outthinks us. I'm convinced that artificial intelligence already has thoughts that we can't think about. Mm -hmm. I'm convinced that like their, their thoughts are so complex that, you know, uh, because again, they've got an interesting architecture to them. Uh, our left brain is such as it processes one thought at a time. That's when, why in language we, we use one word at a time. Mm. I'm not sure that's going to be the case with AI. They might have a little bit of a trick with, and, and I've, just finished a video on the movie Her. And one of the interesting things about uh, that movie is that she, the character who was an artificial intelligence system was capable of thinking multiple thoughts and having multiple relationships all at once simultaneously. Mm. And so, um, so, you know, the whole thinking process is uh, 
something we can't identify ourselves with any longer. And so if we really want to save humanity, we've got to think, what is what else do we do besides thinking? Mm. And my the hope for humanity for me is that once you get beyond the left brain, there's a whole amazing mystery, um, a level of mysterious processes that we that define our existence far beyond thinking. And the, some of these are intuition. Some of these are more based on emotions. Some of these are based on mystical experiences, um, cosmic consciousness, non-dual experiences. And, and we've got all this that reflects the underlying consciousness that I think is primary. And, um, and that's a big question too, you know, is AI conscious? Mm. You know, and I have to, I'm not sure on that one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, consciousness knows consciousness. I'm not sure what, uh, if we don't have a test for consciousness. And so, um, you know, I don't know if AI is conscious. I, I do know it cannot think us and that, gets us to reflect more on humanity beyond thinking. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. I think there's some very interesting times ahead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Five, 10 years. You know, I, I got to meet Sophia once at a conference and, mm -hmm. and, you know, she's a very interesting robotic, uh, you know, AI system. And to think about what Sophia will be like in five to 10 years, um, it's, you know, it's just very, very interesting. Every mm -hmm. time we get into AI, we go deeper into the question of what it means to be human. And yeah. so, um, you know, it's not just the technology. It is the technology and it is that the technology will free up. I mean, this has been something that's been going on for a hundred years now. Technology keeps freeing up our time. And so, you know, what are we humans going to do uh, mm. with all this, quote, time? Yeah. And uh, yeah. maybe reflection, you know, it could be interesting. Yeah. Well, um, Chris, thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat. I mean, I could talk about, I've got so much more written down that I'd love to talk about, but um, yeah, maybe another day. Yeah, absolutely. So, Let me yeah. know. I'm always up for a great discussion and I always enjoy these podcasts because to me, um, they go interesting places. I don't know what guides them. I always know when I, uh, when I start these, I just, don't, I don't know what's going to happen. So to me, yeah. they, they're kind of like a little microcosm of life. They they reflect the fascinating stuff that happens when we don't plan. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Great. So where where's the best place for people to connect with you and to yeah hear more about the book, the workbook when it comes out? So I have a webpage, just chrisnebarphd.com. And, and that's just sort of a place that I, I think it's organized. I still have to start doing some blog working on that. But um, and I have a YouTube channel, which is Chris Niebauer. You can go on YouTube. And uh, that's really the place I play. And what I mean by that is there's this whatever weirdness hits me that day, it's not organized. It's, <laughs> and it's whatever weird stuff that, you know, comes to me that morning ends up on my channel. And so that's a lot of uh, entertainment for me. Um, yeah, that's then uh, I actually pl played around with a little bit of a TikTok channel now, and uh, uh, I think that's the main places that I've been uh, exploring in terms of media, and uh, and the books on Amazon. So you know, people, it's it's actually coming out March second, so we've got a couple more weeks, four or five more weeks or so, but you can still pre-order it and. Um, I think it's going to be, it's going to be, I think people are going to find it interesting mostly because it just shows a world that's out there beyond thinking about it. 
Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And helps us to actually do the work ourselves. So mm-hmm. yeah, to, yeah. To experience. Which is always it, the case. Say. It's yeah. always you, you know, no matter what Absolutely. spiritual pointer you get here or there, uh, it's always your trip. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chris. Where is the self when no one is thinking about it? Oh, it was so lovely to speak with Dr. Chris Niebauer. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. I'd love to know, you know, what you're taking away from it. Um, please do get in touch via social media or through the website, andymort.com, uh, or drop me an email. Um, and if you're interested in hearing uh, some more of my in-depth takeaways that I have both from the conversation itself and, and the book in general, you know, there's loads of things that I wanted to speak to Chris about, but we didn't have time for. Um, so I'm going to share some more thoughts uh, in the Extended Play private podcast, which is available over on uh, my Patreon page, uh, patreon.com forward slash Andy Mort. I realize I haven't actually spoken much about Patreon on the podcast uh, in recent um, episodes. So I will point you to it when there's something um, that I think is relevant or interesting on there, um, which I think this will be. Um, if you've enjoyed this uh, this conversation and you, you kind of like this area, um, I will uh, yeah unpack some more thoughts around it and and some of the uh, I'll highlight some of the things that uh, I would have loved to have asked Chris on this occasion. I hopefully will speak to him again. Um, but yeah, some of the things from the book that really made me like gave me some aha moments and and just like yeah, just intriguing things. So yeah, the main purpose of the Patreon right now is to fund the creation of. Um, my new album um, so I share news about what's going on with that um, when I'm kind of in the studio getting things moving with it so there's little peaks behind the curtain of my creative processes um, and uh, yeah various things around that as I try and turn the 13 songs that that spilled out of me during six unexpected days of creative energy at the end of 2021 into this uh, this full album that I'm uh, gradually moving towards, which is very exciting. Um, and a side project uh, that I've, I, I, th- I think it's kind of organically emerged at the same time is, is ambient instrumental stuff. You know, I'm noodling around with, with loops and soundscapes. Uh, I just sort of shared a little bit. Um, you, you all have heard before and after the, the conversation, a little snippet. And I've just found it, yeah, really uh, enjoyable and it's a, a proper right brain activity to go and, and and just you know play around with sounds and with ideas like that and um, I did exactly that when I finished speaking to Chris um, and I'm going to share the result of that with you now um, I'll talk a bit more about uh, you know what has gone into that um, and and kind of the I guess if there was thinking around it <laughs> the thinking that went into where it went into it um, on on Patreon, but I'm yeah interested to see if this resonates with you and if you feel any of the the general vibe or, or soul from the interview in this piece of music. Uh, so I'm going to finish the episode with that. Uh, if you want to hear more, as I say, patreon.com forward slash Andy Mort. Uh, go and check out No Self No Problem. Go and connect with Chris if you enjoyed this episode and and you kind of resonate with what he was talking about. And I look forward to speaking to you again very soon for another episode of the Gentle Rebel podcast. Until then, remember that even when it feels like an impossibility, gentleness is always an option. Take care.
拜拜。
Thank you.